My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Hi, everyone. It's Alec Crawford, host of the Stay Sustainable podcast. And our special guest today is Gil Epen, CEO of Decision Options and board member at the American Society for Artificial Intelligence. Welcome, Gil. Thanks, Alec. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of your show. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been watching Scientific Sense as well, which is pretty cool. <laughs> So you mentioned to me, you know, when we talked earlier that the best boss you ever had was pretty early in your career. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you were doing in the 1990s at Hewlett Packard and what made Steve Shields a great boss? Yeah, I don't know if he is listening to this. So, um, so I was at University of Chicago in my MBA program and in between the two years, I, I interned at Corvallis, Oregon uh, where HP has a big plant, um, primarily focused on inkjet printer manufacturing. So I was an intern there. I mean, I knew pretty much nothing. <laughs> you know, uh, first year MBA student, and I had this boss. You know, he he came. Uh, so Hewlett Packard. You know, if you remember, in the nineties, um, was a very special American company. Um, it it was you know, sort of unstructured or not really configured like a, a big company. So everybody did pretty much, you know, what they wanted to do. We had this huge manufacturing floors where people sat, um, you know, whether you are a big guy or a small guy, they all had, you know, little cube type spaces. And so I was sitting close to Steve Shields, who just came back to Oregon. I, if I remember correctly, after managing a very large division of Hewlett Packard, so they moved people around also uh, at that time. And I was his only employee <laughs> for a period of time. This little intern uh, from University of Chicago, and so I got a lot of attention. So that may be one of the reasons I, <laughs> I like that. And uh, to, to complete the story, uh, at Hewlett Packard, they put me on a private plane to Santa Clara one time. Um, you know, I walked around the HP's headquarters in Santa Clara and um, got into talking to somebody who was bald and glasses and all of that, sitting sort of the central area, but just still a cube, not an office. And had a long conversation with the guy about strategy, Hewlett <laughs> Packard strategy. <laughs> as MBA students often do. Uh, and I came back to Oregon and I told the, told the folks that I met this guy and they were telling me there was Lou Platt, uh, HP CEO. So this was a culture that is fundamentally different from most American companies. And so I, I just fell in love with it, yeah. Yeah, culture is so important and uh, it's something that, you know, whenever I've been applying for a job in the past, and I'm obviously retired now, but I, I that would be one of my first questions. Tell me about the culture of your firm. And uh, 
So, so talk about some of the other places you've been and how the culture might have differed from HP. Yeah, so I was in a, you know, after that, uh, I went to business school. I was in a large management consulting firm. Um, it was interesting. I mean, it was also a very good culture in the sense that, you know, we had small groups of people going out and helping clients uh, with, you know, emerging problems. So it's intellectually very interesting very challenging, um, but it is transient in the sense that, you know, you, you go and do project one with a few people and then you go to project two, which is a different set of people. So it, it's, a, it's sort of a different thing. Um, and then I was at a large pharmaceutical company in the, in the 90s, which was a totally different experience. This company was growing at 30, 40% a year. And I was responsible for their R&D financial planning um, when the company was investing, you know, four to five billion dollars into a variety of R&D programs. So, um, so sort of recreated the HP culture <laughs> within there. Uh, we had a group of 50 people. We had sort of a secluded area for ourselves <laughs> because we were innovating. We were playing around and we'll talk about this later, we playing a lot of machine learning in the mid-90s. Uh, we built one of the largest uh, predictive models for pharmaceutical R&D. Uh, this was before, uh, you know, the search company was founded. Um, and, and so, yeah, so we were doing some really interesting stuff, uh, very intellectually challenging, very technologically advanced, and a group of people who wanted to work together. So we sort of recreated Hewlett Packard uh, in, a, in, a, in a small sense. Super cool. And and look, you've been working in this field for a while. What's the, the craziest story you can tell us from working in technology in the past few decades? Yeah, so it will be this pharmaceutical company. So, you know, I came in there. So I came from a management consulting firm. So, you know, we were consulting with Microsoft, Hewlett Packard, you know, uh, manufacturing and high tech firms. And pharmaceuticals was really a, a foreign concept for me. I knew nothing about it. Um, but I knew that, you know, the high growth that company is facing, we have to really use technology to really manage it properly. And so uh, the biggest challenge was uh, this was a foreign concept. So every operating manager, there were 40 of them in different departments. They are mechanical engineers, chemists, doctors, statisticians. They all had different perspectives. And so the biggest challenge for technology uh, in the enterprise is to convince people that technology could help them. And, and this was the biggest challenge that I ever faced. Um, I tell people that, you know, I walked around the company with a bulletproof vest because, you know, a lot of people wanted to just, just kill me because this, this sounded so foreign. Um, so they, they all, you know, went out and, you know, had their budgets in a paper napkin and said, you know, I need $35 million and no technology can tell me it's less than $35 million type situation. So this is an interesting thing for technology implementers to think about. You may have the greatest technology in the world, but if you cannot convince decision makers its utility, it, it's it's seldom going to succeed. Yeah, that was my challenge. Yeah, well, that leads us up to you founding Decision Options, your your company. So so tell us how you came to decide to do that. 
Yeah, so I, so I left this pharmaceutical company in the in the early two thousands. Um, I had the entrepreneurial bug. I had never been in a small company, so I've been in a you know large companies, Fortune ten, Fortune one hundred type situations all my career till then. And this was a big <laughs> big change. I was my own marketer, my own accountant, my own everything. Um, very few people to help me, um, but it was a consulting type environment. So we did some work for NASA, Hewlett Packard, Pfizer, Schlumberger, ATK, John Deere, um, industry agnostic, but our focus has been really using data and analytics to help companies make better decisions. Um, so a lot of the consulting work, we don't do that anymore. Uh, we, we create and we'll talk about this in the, in the, um, in the latter sections, that uh, we, we create 30 AI systems uh, for companies to implement. Yeah. Got it. And, uh, tell, tell us more about the company, what your key goals are or challenges over the next few years. Yeah. So the company is transitioning. Like I mentioned, we don't do much consulting anymore. We would like to create AI systems, which is sort of turnkey type situation. Um, the company also ran a hedge fund, uh, between 2004 and 2007. That was a long shot, uh, fully automated fund. So it's creating some financial advisory products. Um, so it's, I would say it's transitioning from operating companies into financial arena um, to, to be more, more useful there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember August 2007, that wasn't exactly <laughs> a great month for quant strategies. Um, yeah. Now, you've written a number of, of publications, but I'd like to really focus on one of your books, Decision Options. How did you decide to write that? So Decision Options is also the name of my company. So um, if you, I mean, I, mean you, I know, Alec, you have a lot of background in, in finance. So if you sort of think back, I mean, obviously, options pricing uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, we have a closed form solution called Black Shores for financial options. But we can think about options in operating companies. So think about an R&D program in a pharmaceutical company, a software development program in a high-tech company, in an oil and gas exploration development project in, a, in an oil and gas company. Um, these are decisions that have options-like characteristics. Um, basically, what that means is that you have an uncertain future outcome and you have flexibility to make decisions. So you can wait, you can accelerate, you can go in different directions. So these have options like characteristics. So what, you know, almost 20 years, I've been focused on that. So how do we value these things? So, you know, you think about an intellectual property position, an R&D project, an oil, oil and gas exploration development project, a software development project, these are uh, sort of bundles of interacting options, um, sometimes sequential, sometimes not. And there's a value that we can impute to it using options pricing principles. Um, obviously, the problem we have in operating companies is that we don't have closed form solutions like Black Scholes, which is very nice. <laughs> Um, we have, um, you know, the underlying attribute is not geometric Brownian motion. It's typically mean reverting and variety of other characteristics. And so we don't have closed form solutions. So we have to solve these numerically. 
So decision options is a methodology and, and we create a technology around that that allows us to value projects in operating companies that are not trading in the marketplace, but they have an, a, you know, a, an economic value that we could use. So an economic value, a downside risk and upside potential that could be uh, used to make decisions. And so the book is about four dozen or so different projects that we have done in a variety of companies. So the first half of the uh, book is uh, the theory underlying decision options. Sometimes in the literature, this is called real options, but we have a different take on that. And then the, the latter part of the book is about four dozen cases of practical applications in different industries. Yeah, super cool. I, I had the privilege of working with Fisher Black at Goldman Sachs in the uh, early 1990s. Amazing, amazing guy. Um, you know, what's interesting is that uh, about this and, and a future application perhaps is you know, the SEC has rolled out uh, their draft ESG risk rules, yeah. climate risk rules. And one of the things they're asking people to do is really value different things and figure out, you know, different scenarios in the future and how that might impact line items on the balance sheet. So that sounds exactly like, like what um, you're thinking about in, in terms of uh, decision options and variations on that. Do you think there's still... Oh, oh, go ahead, Gil. No, just a very quick thing. So, um, so I was part of FASB, um, you know, committee that was convened in 2010. So one of the one of the sort of a nagging challenges is that when execs are given given employee stock options, there's a value to it, but it's not Black Scholes value because there's early exercise and and other constraints on it. And so what SEC and FASB have been um, trying to do, I don't know where they are today, but they're coming back on this now, is to say when companies issue employee stock options, they have to value it, and, and they have to let the shareholders know this much value is given out to employees. It's a, it's a challenging, <laughs> challenging problem. Uh, but I think it's happening now again in uh, 2023. Yeah, I think they, they need to footnote it. Basically, and disclose yeah. the methodology. I think I think you're accurate about that. Although, I am not an accountant, so so we were we were discussing. You just mentioned your AI driven long short market neutral hedge funds. Can you can you tell us more about that? Is that something that's you know kind of ready to go now again, or or what are your thoughts? Yeah, so we're not running any funds. You know, we are a registered investment advisor in Connecticut, so we're not advising any clients. We're not running any funds. Um, what we have is a technology that registered investment advisors could use to help their clients. And so, um, you know, as you know, Eric, you know, the, it's a challenging problem because, you know, if you're a registered investment advisor and I have 100 clients, all of them have different risk return requirements. Ideally, they wanted to, want to be on the efficient frontier, ideally, you know, that's where the registered investment advisor could add some value. But they do an allocation decision, so much in stock, so much in bonds, so much in cash, uh, and then revisit that maybe once every quarter, twice a year, or once a year. Uh, but in this fast-moving markets, your portfolios could be completely out of whack, you know, even in, even in a month's time. So what this technology does is it allows the registered investment advisors to prescribe where they want to be on the risk-return spectrum, and then it, it uh, manages that for them. 
Um, so it's an autonomous <laughs> um, investment advisory portfolio management system. It's not that you don't have control over it. You know, at any day you can go in and say, hey, I don't like this. I'm going to take full control of it and, and do whatever you want. But you can manage your client's portfolio with, uh, with a dozen parameters that, that allows you to sort of control it. And, and, and the system does all the mechanics of it. So, you know, one of the issues in finance is that you have this uh, fat, fat thumb or fat finger problem. Uh, humans interacting with financial data, trading decisions, portfolio management decisions, bring in a risk that we have really accounted for. Uh, humans get distracted, they do all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. Uh, machines are not better at that, you know, when, once we have it going, yeah. So, so are you using the concept of risk parity at all in this strategy or no? Risk parity? Uh, so what, what the system allows uh, um, investment advisors to do is to say, my client wants to be at this sort of a risk return requirement um, and you have multiple options. You can you can say, I just want S&P 500 in my portfolio, I have mid caps, uh, I just want bonds or whatever. Uh, so you can constrain the universe the system will deal with, uh, but it will always keep you on that efficient frontier uh, as the market market moves around. So that is sort of the, the big advantage of this. So, you know, if you're sitting on the beach um, and you have 100 clients and you know, you're worried about what's going to happen, um, you have something working underneath that, that that does that for you. Yeah. Got it. Now, shifting gears to AI, uh, tell me a little bit about your mission uh, at the American so- Society for AI, where you're a board member. Yeah, so this is a recent, recent thing, which I really liked. Um, so the goal here is to bring 100, 125 people together. Um, the initial uh, goal is just the US, but you know we'll expand it um, to international applicants. So 100, 125 people come together, academics, entrepreneurs, uh, people who have done a lot of work in the AI arena, and essentially let them interact unstructured unconditional. Um, so there are, there are no presentations, there are no PowerPoint documents uh, to share, but essentially it's 100, 125 people coming together. So it doesn't have a policy um, a policy focus, Alex. So, um, you know, we're not trying to influence Washington in any direction. Uh, we just want this these group of people to come together and think about AI. Where is it going? How is it going to affect society? Um, what are the implications for society? You know, those types of questions. That's that's the goal. So it's, it's fairly undefined, I would say, and unstructured, but it, it is a, a small group of people, 100 to 125 is what we're targeting, yeah. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about risk management and AI and impact on society recently. Super important question. Now, you're also teaching at uh, Rochester Polytechnic Institute, is that right? Rensselaer. Rensselaer, 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 sorry. And uh, and what are you teaching there? Yes, I'm not involved with teaching now, but I help them create an AI 
course for returning professionals. So RPI is pretty good at uh, providing information and courses to um, sort of mid-career technologists and business people. Hmm. Um, and in the transition that we're going through now, where AI is you know, sort of taking over for a lot of the mundane things that people do, uh, there are a lot of skills that to be imparted even in the mid-level management um, or high, you know, higher management. So this is a course that sort of give them a taste for how to think about AI and 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 how to how to update the skills uh, for the future. So so that's the course that RPI is running. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. I mean, I think a lot of people would be interested in courses like that. I think the, you know, some of these YouTube courses are at, you know, millions of views. And, you know, look, obviously there are a a lot of different types of AI for business decision making. What type of AI does your research show works best? Yeah, AI is a very, uh, uh, (laughs) very loaded term. Um, So, we have been doing AI, I would argue, from the advent of computers. So, uh, you know, I've been to undergraduate school in India. My my uh, project just out of undergraduate school was to create a program using IBM 370 and Fortran, <laughs> which is an archaic program now, and punch cards that most of your listeners won't even know what that means, uh, to create a, a program that given the dimensions of an industrial building, it will optimize the construction of that industrial building. And so if you if you sort of define AI more broadly, which is given data, um, you have a, you have something that allows you to uh, to do things better than humans. And it does better when there's a lot of data, right? So so AI has been around you know, in different names for, for a long, long time. So what has happened last maybe five years is that we have very inexpensive computers and we have a lot of memory. Um, I don't really see Alec, any innovation in mathematics. I mean, all the statistical stuff that we do have been around for a long time. Uh, but we can now run this in a much, much faster way. Um, you know, the search company has um, sort of demonstrated the quantum computing. So we can go maybe 10x, 100x on this pretty easily in the next five years, I would think. So it is the speed of information processing that is really making AI work. And humans are not very really good at um, digesting a lot of interconnected, uncertain information. So we can train computers to do that. So that is sort of my definition of artificial intelligence. So so going back to your question, um, just to put this in context, um, you know, so we have machine learning, which is sort of statistical modeling. We have been doing it for a long time. We have deep learning, which is sort of a neural networks. Neural networks started in the 1960s, actually. Uh, but we have some, you know, uh, easier way to do it now. And then we have natural language processing. We have this, you know, big uh, language models and, and all of that. So 
uh, it is fundamentally processing large amounts of information to help humans make better decisions, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, from my perspective, I think the definition of really changed, right? When the hand calculator came out, people were like, oh my God, artificial intelligence. And, and now the definition is uh, artificial general intelligence or AGI. Yeah. I think that's really what people are thinking about. Um, you know, at some point, it seems like science fiction is going to become science fact, right? And uh, what do you think is coming in terms of improved human-machine interfaces over the next few years? Yes, yeah, so artificial general intelligence is kind of interesting, Alex. So I, I wrote a blog, blog around this that um, there is a huge risk in artificial intelligence, which is the raw materials AI uses is existing and historical data. So at time equal to zero right now, if you deploy an AI, the raw materials it has is whatever has, that has happened before. So suppose we enter a regime where um, there are no humans or the humans are just gone, you know, sit on the beach and the AI is running everything. Uh, the, the future information is also going to be AI generated so if AI generating future information based on historical data, we're in sort of a loop. I call it AI loop, <laughs> right? So at some point uh, that could fail, right? Because we cannot really move forward. Um, so a lot of people are afraid of AI. I mean, we have 8 billion people running around the, the planet. All of them are intelligent, not necessarily artificially, but they're intelligent. But not many of them have, you know, invented um, theory of relativity or quantum mechanics, you know. So, so we could have a lot of AI stuff going on, but it is fundamentally regurgitating existing information in some systematic way. So I have no fear. I have no fear of AI ever taking over anything. So where do, where do you think we'll see AI make a difference in key professions over the next few years, such as for a doctor or a lawyer or something like that? Yeah, so any repeating activity, humans are pretty bad, and that includes medicine, that includes engineering, that includes accounting, or anything that you can think of. And so when you deploy a human on a repeating activity that keeps... Uh, doing the same thing, he or she get bored. Uh, we get very not very efficient in it. So I believe AI is going to take over any repeating activity that we currently see. Any. Uh, so that has a lot of implications. Um, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. That jobs are currently currently defined. Uh, but so the policy and societal question is. What do they want to do? I mean, they. So I'm a big proponent. I like this is going on a tangent here. I'm a big proponent of minimum guaranteed wages, uh, just like Denmark and uh, Norway and others have implemented, which is basically saying, "Hey, go do what you want to do." There, there's really no need to sit in a manufacturing plant and put nuts and bolts into an automobile. The machines are so, so good at that. Uh, but, you know, go do your painting, go do your music making. This is what humans humans are really meant to do. 
And, and we can get there if we have the right policy direction, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's all a matter of finding the budget for that, I suspect. Uh, so, so how can corporate and world leaders use AI for good? Yeah, that's an that's interesting thing. So corporate, uh, so any senior execs today in a, in a company that says, hey, this AI thing is not for me, is going to lose. <laughs> uh, I'll put money on it. I'll short that company if I can hear a CEO saying, hey, this AI thing is not, you know. Um, we are a pharmaceutical company. We have chemists and biologists who are inventing things. AI is not going to do it. No, that company is going to be gone in a few years. And so what corporate leaders have to understand is that, yeah, there's no escaping AI. It's a question of how you implement it properly. Um, regarding government leaders, yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about, you know, uh, about how they make decisions, but I see a lot of, I hate to say this, I like, I, hate, I see a lot of senile leaders around the world. You have 200 countries. The leaders appear to be like 70s and 80s, and some of them don't know what internet is. I think those countries are all going to lose. Um, so my thinking is that they have to elect some young people <laughs> to, to run these companies who have some idea what technology is all about. So I have to say, I'm not an expert on how governments make decisions, but I think there's a risk there, yeah. For sure. And what advice would you have for an undergrad who wants to get involved in AI? What should they study? What should they do? Yeah, so I think entrepreneurship is the most important thing. So, you know, we came through the last 50 years where if you get, you know, solid technical education, engineering, medicine, finance, or whatever, then you can go on and have a job. I would contend that there, there are not going to be any jobs in the future, no jobs at all. And so for a young person starting now, it's about knowledge and using that knowledge to create a company. Um, because a job is going to come from your own attempt to create a job. That, you know, you're not going to work for GE or Pfizer or IBM for 40 years of retire, that, that time is gone. Yeah, totally agree with that. And, and what advice would you have for the CEO of, let's say, an industrial company like GE about how to use AI to improve their decision-making? Yeah, so, so I think about this like in, in a sort of three different buckets. So one problem is selection, which is, so there are a lot of different projects in the portfolio. So I could improve my IT infrastructure. I can go to Vietnam, put a manufacturing plant. I can hire a bunch of people. These are disparate projects, but I have a resource constraint. I have only so much money, time, space, and people. And so I have to select from available alternatives to maximize the, the value of the portfolio. 
So that is that is the problem for a senior exec, right? So how do I maximize the value portfolio within a resource constraint when a disparate project? So AI could help there quite a bit. I mean, we talked about valuation and, and all of that. There's a design problem, which is the company has decided to do a project. You know, they want to go to Texas and have this plan to construct a plant and you know i'm just making this up build some chips or whatever but i can think about that project in multiple designs which is i could outsource part of the construction um, i could implement ai sort of the the robotics and clean rooms and you know things like that and i can have less number of people there's a lot of choices on the table so the question is, what's the right, de right design for that project for me to, to pursue? And, and fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's about portfolio management. So the, the C-level execs have to show they're, they're enhancing the value of the portfolio. So it doesn't matter you know, if they have great projects and, and all of that, but what shareholders want to see is how is that person maximizing the value of the portfolio. So these are the, the three sort of the major buckets of decisions they have to really think about. Yeah. Great advice. So the last few minutes is a lightning round where okay. I, I mentioned different things and ask if you, if you think they're underrated or overrated and then with a, a brief answer why. So we'll kick it off with living and working in Connecticut, underrated or overrated. <laughs> Yeah, so I came to Connecticut to work for uh, Pfizer, uh, Pfizer R&D, and I've never been in Connecticut before that. So this was in the mid-90s. And I've been here for nearly 30 years now. And I would say it's a great place to live. It's, um, it's um, just as an aside, like, you know, uh, I think between 1995 and 2002, uh, if, you, if folks know this, this area, between Providence and New Haven, we had the highest per capita PhDs in the world. Um, <laughs> so wow. That's because we have electric port here, and then we had Spice R&D here that was growing quite rapidly. So, yeah, it's a place with a lot of intellectual uh, horsepower. Um, so I think it's underrated. I mean, things have changed <laughs> last 30 years. But I believe it's underrated. So anybody who wants to come to Connecticut, um, it's not Chicago, it's not New York, it's not San Francisco, but it's a peaceful place where you can live and work, I think. Getting an engineering degree, underrated or overrated? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I was a bad engineer. I, I, I got into engineering because my dad was a professor of engineering. And if he were not, I would never have become an engineer. But I did a lot of engineering work after coming to the, to the US for about five, six years. And then slowly realized that it's not something that I really enjoy. So your question is about, does it give you sort of a foundational knowledge that you can extend into other areas? I think it's too much, too much cost. <laughs> I mean, I spent 10 years of my life learning engineering. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I think it's probably overrated, I would say. 
local newspapers like The Day, a century-old newspaper for the New London and Groton area, underrated or overrated? Yes, I don't read a lot of newspapers, so I don't know, um, I don't know what, what they're writing about. But we have a problem here in New London, Groton area, that you know, New London, as you as you know, like as, you know, used to be a thriving, um, very very vibrant city, and then things sort of collapsed, um, and you know, it's sort of trying to come back. So these newspapers can actually sort of, you know, prop up this 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 towns and cities. We need, I think, I believe in the U.S. We need small towns and cities to thrive. I'm a city. I'm a city person. You know, I would rather live in New York than in, in Groton. But it is there is something there that we need to really focus on. But I don't know what what those newspapers are writing about. Yeah. The Indian cricket team this year underrated or overrated? <laughs> I think it's probably underrated. Yeah. So the so I grew up playing cricket. I wasn't. I was awful at it. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the game, so I continued watching it. So actually, Alec, in the U.S., um, we are creating, not we, but folks are creating uh, two different cricket leagues uh, in the U.S. Uh, the Microsoft CEO is involved in it. The ex-Pepsi CEO is involved in it. Um, I think it's a game that Americans would love. I mean... You know, this this looks very much like uh, baseball. Um, and just two very quick anecdotes. Um, uh, so the the distance between the mount and the plate is 20 yards. The the distance between wicket to wicket, as we call it, cricket is 20 yards. So so baseball is based on cricket. The the ball is a little different. And then the first cricket game between two nations was played in New York Giant Stadium between New York, between uh, US and Canada. Unfortunately, Canada won. This was in 1830s. And so, yeah, US has a long history with cricket. We just sort of went away from it, yeah. Yeah, hosting a podcast, underrated or overrated? Uh, I love it. So, I mean, it takes, as you know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, I just love, like talking to people. Um, and I like topics I don't know anything about. And so, so podcast is a nice way for me to engage with experts who know a lot about their, uh, you know, their expertise. And typically I learn a lot from it, yeah. A University of Chicago MBA, underrated or overrated? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, when I went to Chicago, we were, I'm not sure we were number one or anything like that. Um, we were pretty, you know, sort of the top six or something like that. And then Chicago really took off. You know, it, it has been number one for a long time now. And so just from a... Um, that person value perspective, <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I mean, the brand gives you some some power, um, but I spend a lot, lot less than what people are spending now for University of Chicago. So, so I would say, you know, before you go to Chicago, look at your net present value, put that, all those numbers into your spreadsheet and see if you have a positive NPV 
um, and it's a matter of cost and expected returns. And finally, Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, yeah. underrated yeah. or overrated? Oh, I think it's underrated. I mean, I, I learned so much from this from this guy. Um, he has a knack of, um, you know, bringing very complex subjects to understandable levels. And that's not something you can learn, I think. I mean, that is, so, so I never, I never liked teaching. Um, and it is the characteristic of a teacher, right? So there is complex content, there are a bunch of students in front of you who don't know it. Um, if you start using equations and, and all of that, they're going to turn off. So I think it's a particular knack to bring complex subjects down to understandable levels. I know, I know that show, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been Gil Epen, CEO of Decision Options and board member at the American Society for Artificial Intelligence. Thanks for coming on the show, Gil. Thanks, Alec. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to The State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I can't do that.